Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We're going to continue on with our sermon series that is called The Good Life. The Good Life, this is week seven of eight. We end it next week. Today we're going to be in chapter eight of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, what essentially, if you're just kind of tuning in, just joining us, Ecclesiastes is asking some real big questions. It's uh, told from the perspective of King Solomon, the preacher, as he calls himself in the book, is asking big questions. What sets you apart? What makes life worth living? What's the point? Where is satisfaction? Where is hope? And what we've learned so far is it's not in the stuff that the world wants you to think it's in. It's not in money, power, sex, things. It's not in any of the things that, that the world is selling. And so the question becomes, where else can we look? And that's where we pick up the text today as the, the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is going to uh, talk about wisdom. Maybe it's wisdom. And what we're going to find out together is that there is a way that leads us into having hardened hearts, and then there is a way uh, that leads us to something wholly better. And so we start in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1. Scripture says this, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. The hardness of his face is changed. Do you know what you look like? And most of us don't. This is kind of a small tragedy, so buckle up. Do you know what you look like when you're really concentrating? Like, when you're really concentrating on something, do you know your concentration face? When I was uh, at the University of Texas, uh, there was one year overlap. My sister, my older sister, was a grad student, and I was an undergrad. And you know, it's a giant place. You never see anybody you know. There's 55,000 students. You just, whatever. And, and one day, out of just random chance, I was going in a direction I don't usually go in, and I was in kind of the main central plaza, the, the square of the university. There's the tower and a bunch of open space. And I see 40 yards across this plaza walking the other direction is my sister. Now, I'm not, you know, I didn't stop her or say hello or anything. I just watched her like a creep. And then I'm, as she comes across the plaza... She has the most angry, frustrated, I mean, I was like, my heart kind of breaks. I don't know what happened today. I don't know what's going wrong. But she was tongue in her cheek, you know, brow furrowed and just marching across the campus. And I thought, man, I got to ask her. So I got home back to our apartment that evening. We lived together for one year too. She has stories to tell. I will not tell any. Um, and I said, hey, you know, I just want to be a good brother for the first time in my life and just kind of check in. Like, what? what's wrong today? And she's like, what are you talking about? It's a great day. It's like, no, no. I mean, but maybe like 11, 15-ish, you were walking across campus and, you know, maybe looked like someone kicked you in the shin, broke up with you, and then, you know, failed you or something. And she's like, no, it's great. And it sort of started clicking. I, I was like, well, okay. And I just started paying attention. And from then on, I noticed that like making mac and cheese, she's doing that. She has, she just has a determined concentration face. Everyone has a determined concentration face. Your eyes start tightening, even when I mentioned it, I was looking. Your eyes start going, I wonder what mine is. And you're concentrating, you're already getting into it. You set your jaw, you scrunch your cheeks, some stick your tongue into your cheeks. Michael Jordan famously stuck his tongue out of his mouth. Every one of us turns into an old sea captain guiding his ship through a storm when we're concentrating. This is what you look like. 
I looked at, I found this in your phone. This is what you look like. It's what we do. This is how we appear to others as we really concentrate. On the other hand, what does the face of pure relaxation look like? A little different. A napping baby, soft edges, the faintest smile, maybe a little drool coming out. What a contrast, right? Look at them together. Yeah. The book of Ecclesiastes says, the hardness of one's face changes when he knows the one who knows the interpretation of a thing. There's this wisdom that the book is speaking of. It isn't simple wisdom. It's capital W, wisdom. It's a particular wisdom that changes hearts. And it's a wisdom we don't control. The book has told us over and over, you don't control it. You don't have it. But there is one who does. There is one who has this wisdom. The baby doesn't know what to do with life. Why is the baby so relaxed? Because the babies, all the baby's needs are met by someone else. So when the baby lays down, the baby knows whatever the baby does while sleeping, mother will clean up when it's done. And when I'm hungry, someone will bring me food. The baby doesn't have stress because the baby is so profoundly out of control that the baby actually gets to just go. The baby doesn't strive. It's why we have the phrase, sleeping like a, how'd you sleep last night? I slept like a baby. The joke I always make in response to that is, so you were up every two hours crying? Is that how you slept last night? Because, so sleeping like a rock makes more sense, but that's irrelevant. Scripture says, if we can know the one who knows, if we can know the one who really knows, it softens us up to grace and mercy. It invites us to loosen the grip on life just a little bit and maybe move one or two clicks from sea captain to sleeping baby. Because Ecclesiastes is all about striving. It's what we've heard over and over. It's, it's we're striving. We're, we're striving for things. We're chasing stuff. We're going for more knowledge. We're going for more wisdom. We want more money. Maybe it's more status. We're striving and clawing, and it's what we do. We're chasing after things, ultimately, that the preacher's telling us that we can't control. And we are maniacs, if nothing else. As human beings, we are maniacs for control and achievement. We spend all of life striving after more control and more achievement. And yet we're being told by the Bible that nothing short of knowing God and knowing Jesus, who was God walking the earth and inviting you to follow him, nothing short of knowing Jesus will allow you to release the frustration of life. So which do you look more like at the end of your average day? Are you a little bit more sea captain or a little more sleeping baby? I think when the way you go to bed says a lot about the life you live. If you're able to go to bed and say, I did what I could do and I'm, I'm out for the day, versus going to bed brow furrowed, frustrated, bitter, and almost not even wanting to go to sleep because it just means you got to do it all again tomorrow. That's the hardness of face that the scripture speaks of. And so some of us in the room, we're going to need to let go today and release some things. Other of us, maybe we're claiming Jesus and we're still swashbuckling through life, you know? We're still kind of walking through life, looking angry and feeling upset, and the frustration and the bitterness is just showing through us. Something needs to change. Keep reading, verse 2. Keep the king's command, he writes, because God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say, what are you doing? 
Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. The preacher now brings government into this. We zoom out a little bit. What is he talking about? This king, what's happening? He brings government into the story. Submit to a king, he's saying, because what can you do otherwise? Submit to the king. God has put the king in place, so submit to the king because you don't control the king. You don't control the tax, you know, bracket. You don't, you don't control the things. And so what's the point? What's the toil in trying to subvert the king? Just submit to the king. I love that he's using king language. He's bringing government as, an, as a, an illustration, but then there's this king language. When you submit to a king, you live life by the king's command. Who's in control at that point? There's an implication. When you submit to a king, you're not in control anymore. When you submit to a ruling power, and the ruling power says to do a thing, you don't control life at that point. On, on some kind of cosmic level, you have released control. When you bow and give influence to something in your life, maybe in a more modern example, when you give influence to something in your life, it leads you. When you submit to something in your life, it begins to take over control and you lose control. So maybe the, the, the admonition there is be careful what you submit to. Be careful what you give your life to. Be careful because we have this modern delusion that because I choose to spend my time on this or I choose to submit my life to this, therefore I'm still in control. And this is social media a hundred times over that when we think, we think, well, I choose to be this, so I'm in charge of my social media life. And study after study that comes out and everything we've learned is that actually once you sign up and submit to it and you start scrolling, it kind of owns you in a way that you're uncomfortable with because you've submitted, you've given some of yourself there, and it takes control. As you submit, it takes control. Some of you right now have been thinking about uh, fantasy football. Right now, someone in this room is thinking about fantasy football. You're thinking that this person is injured. I wonder if he's still injured. Do I have time to change my lineup? You're thinking about it because on some level, you've You've submitted some sliver of your life, and the more you submit to it, the more it takes back from you. Somebody just put their phone back in their pocket going, I wasn't looking at fancy. <laughs> Whatever you submit to controls you on the level to which you have submitted to it. This is kind of the, the relationship. If we had like a law we could build out of this. Whatever you submit to controls you to the level you submit. So if you submit 1% of your life to it, it's got that part of you. This is a little bit of the, the old adage that you've heard growing up, you know, you are who your friends are, you are who you run with. When you submit yourself to that friend group, you kind of become like the friend group. You don't change them, they change you. You will become conformed to whatever you submit to. And the question becomes, what are you submitting your life to? Two people get married. This is a really easy one. This changes people. You end up becoming more like the other. Each one blends into the other. As two become one and submit to the other, they become more like the other. My wife grew up in West Texas. Football is the religion there. Now, I, having grown up in a city, and basketball was what I liked, she likes basketball. And she goes, yeah, football, that's fine, but I can't wait for basketball season. I go, yeah. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to be at the Stranahan going to watch a musical because I'd never seen a musical before I'd met her. But now I'm kind of like, but musicals are kind of cool, right? And, and so her love of basketball and my appreciation for musicals has everything to do with we'd submitted to each other. And as we submit to each other and we grow with each other, we begin to love what the other loves. 
And that's like a beautiful picture of it in a marriage, and it's not about basketball. It's about how when we submit to someone, we become conformed to them. When we submit to something, we become more like it. And as you look at your life, what are you submitting your life to? Because I would hazard a guess that from the outside looking in, someone might be able to tell you're becoming more like it. What's your first affection in the morning? Some people go, I don't know what I'm submitting my life to. I don't know what that's about. The easy diagnostic question is, what's your first thing you do in the morning? What's the first thing you look at, the first thing you think about? What's that? Odds are you subconsciously prioritize your day based on what you most want to submit to. And so if your first look is a scroll through something, if your first look is a, you'll find out pretty quickly what you're into. So be careful. Be careful who and what you submit to. Keep reading verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this also is vanity or vapor or breath or mist. The preacher observes that wicked people are prospering and righteous people are suffering. What is this? And this takes us back to the central idea of control in this part of the, the, the scripture. We talked last week about karma. We love the idea of karma because we think we're pretty good people, and so I should have a pretty good life. You get out what you put in, you reap what you sow. And the Bible says again and again, while there are aspects of that in life, you know, there are consequences for actions, and so that's a real thing. The Bible says you're not in control here, though. There's a place where we try to make life karmic. We try to bend life to our will, and the Bible says you're just not in control. These people lived a righteous life, and they died like wicked people. And these people lived a wicked life, and they prospered like righteous people. You can't manipulate the market. You cannot build the universe to your will. You can't behave your way into blessings from God. And it's frustrating because we want to. What's the indicator that you're trying to bend God to your will? It's frustration. This is going to be the most obvious thing you hear today, but also hopefully the most unforgettable thing you hear today. Frustration is our default emotional response to lacking control in the world. Frustration is our default emotional response to lacking control in the world, which is to say this, the next time you're frustrated, I want you to ask, what am I trying to control that I can't control? The easy example here is you left the house on time and you hit construction traffic you didn't know about. Now you're aggravated and frustrated. Why? Because you cannot control it, you didn't know about it, and now you're late. And you did everything right. You got ready on time, you had everything set aside, you got out the door, the keys, the car, everything's perfect, you're ready, you're there, and then you see orange cones and you go, oh no. And that merge sign comes up and now you're late. And how irresponsible do you look? How frustrating. Some of you were going on vacation and then you tested for COVID and then you didn't go on vacation. Some of you were passed over for a promotion even though you did everything you knew to do. On a scale of 1 to 10, how frustrating is that? How frustrating? What are we trying to control that we don't actually control? The preacher is saying that your frustration is foolishness in emotional form. He uses this word foolishness multiple times in the, in the text. It's foolishness in emotional form because we know better. I know I don't control traffic. I know I don't control other people's behavior. I know, I, I know what I don't control didn't turn out like you hoped. We have to ask ourselves, since when did your hopes run the world? You wanted things to be different, and the preacher would say, so when did what you want cause the sun to rise and fall? 
He, this is why he says this is vanity. It's vapor, it's mist, it's breath, it's vanishing. You can want it all you want, but it doesn't change the fact that it's not under your control. Evil villains have unlimited power in mansions, and they eat Ferrari and, or they eat caviar and Ferraris. They hope they don't eat Ferraris. They probably could. Get away with it. Ferrari brand caviar. Someone Google that as soon as we're done. See if that's real. Evil villains get what they don't deserve. That's not just the movies. That's like, in the movies, they always get justice. In real life, they're just rich. You know, they're just insane people that are just rich and doing whatever they want. And you're like, but they don't live by God's law. The jerk gets the girl. The cheater aces the test. The crooked get rich. And we, lacking control, get frustrated. That's frustrating. Frustration, if it's cultivated and not really checked, if we don't check frustration, what happens is it becomes something else. It kind of gets deeper, and the roots of frustration grow, and eventually what we have is bitterness. Frustration is momentary. Bitterness is more like an endemic problem in your life now. I'm just sort of bitter. The world just seems against me. And once we get bitter, that's when we begin to look hardened, as the Scripture said, you, the, a hardened face. We begin from frustration in the moment, I shouldn't, no, that's not how that's supposed to go, to larger bitterness, this just doesn't seem right. And all of a sudden, we walk around hardened, and we have hardened hearts. With our spouses, I don't control them. Our friends, our kids, with God, God, I did everything right and yet. That's the diagnosis. That's the way the relationship ended. I tried my hardest. And where were you? Where's the justice? Why, God? Verse 15. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep? Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. We say, why God? And the, the response of Scripture is, no matter how much you may toil, you're not going to know. You're not going to find it out. You won't know. You can't know. You're not ready. But, but, but I need to know. Why? Sorry toil, strive, chase. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. When we fail to accept that as people, that's when we choose to live the hardened life of profound frustration. That's when we choose bitterness. When we fail to accept that we don't know the ways of God, we don't know the means of God, we don't know how he's doing what he's doing or where this is going and where this trial is for, when we start going, why? Why aren't you answering me? Why are you this way? We elect ourselves into a life of profound bitterness. Either the world is failing us or God is failing us, but someone is failing us. That's what we start to think. Someone is failing us. And I got rid of this person and that person. I changed jobs. I moved cities. I did all the things. None of it made me happy, so it must be God's fault. And this is a, this is a symptom of another thing that's happening in us. So now we have this frustration and this bitterness. And where is this coming from? This is coming from when we're talking about kings and kingdoms. We're talking about who are you submitted to. This happens because what we've ultimately done in our modern society, what most of us ultimately do most days, if we're not careful, is we have submitted to the kingdom of me. 
I live my life submitted to the kingdom of me. My desires and my wants and my priorities and my agenda. Easy example. You ever hosted a party and prayed against the weather? I mean, I mean the Lord is gracious and will listen to your heart's cry. But you've, you know, we've done this where you go, Lord, I mean, just, God, if you just give us a three-hour window right here, it'd be, we're praying against the global weather system for our agenda, and two doors down, we're out in the, a little bit further out in the country, there's a farmer going, Lord, if I can just get a three-hour window of rain, and all of our prayers are colliding in heaven and contradicting each other, and God's just up there going, why do they pray for weather so much? <laughs> there's so many things happening, and they're just so concerned about this weather. Guess what? We have prayed for it for this week because it's fam jam. And so we said, Lord, just give us, just give us one clear day. We know the fall is coming. We know it's going to be messy and wet and it's going to get cold and it's going to be awful. And we know it's coming. Guess what next Sunday is? Rainy in 62. This Sunday, go get a sunburn. Have fun. We prayed for it. <laughs> We're saying to the earth, submit to me. Kingdom of me is in, in play right now. Please submit to me. But it doesn't submit, does it? Your job doesn't submit to you. Your kids don't submit to you. Your spouse doesn't submit to you. Stock market won't submit to you. Weather, politics, sports, it doesn't submit to you. So, so what do we learn from that? Pursuing the kingdom of me will always leave us frustrated and unsatisfied. Pursuing the kingdom of me always leaves you frustrated and unsatisfied. So you start feeling frustrated and you go, what is it that I'm trying to control that I don't control? And one hop, skip, and a jump from there is a different conversation you can have within yourself, which is to say, where am I pursuing the kingdom of me? Because that's what ultimately is going to lead me into this feeling. It leaves you unsatisfied because you don't rule the world, and that becomes really apparent pretty quickly. Second, because a striving life is always going to be marked by a failure to meet the goal. A striving life is always marked by a failure for two reasons. One, you're not actually in charge, and so sometimes you trick yourself into thinking you got what you wanted. But two, even when you get what you wanted, the bar of success and satisfaction is always moving in material things, isn't it? It's always, there's always a new thing. There's always a better thing. There's always another thing. There's always more. And so even when we're striving, I'm striving for status, but look at their status. I'm striving for wealth, but look at their wealth. There's always another level. If you were homeless and you got a roof over your head and you're in an apartment, that's an incredible thing. Pretty soon after you get a roof over your head, you're going to talk to somebody who goes, you know, but you really shouldn't be paying rent. You should own your home. You're making an investment. You go, yeah, I should own a home. So then you work really hard and you karmically align the cosmos to help you get a home. You get your house. And then your neighbors, they're leaving for a few weeks. Where are you guys going? They're going to their lake house. I don't have a lake house. So now I don't want a house. I want a lake house. Then you get that lake house. You do a good job. You get your lake house. And what do you do at your lake house? You sit and look at the lake while your neighbors are riding around in jet skis. I don't know. Okay, I need a jet ski. I need one. Well, it's not fun to go by yourself. That's weird. So now you got to get two jet skis. You got two jet skis, and then you look out there. You're on your jet skis. You're flying around this lake, looking at your lake house, and somebody flies by in a boat. And a pontoon boat at that. They have 19 friends out there. I want 19 friends out here. I need a boat. So you trade out those jet skis. You get yourself a boat. You're on your boat. You're enjoying your boat. And pretty soon your pontoon boat starts doing this because a yacht passes you. And you go, ooh, that's the life. And you go from homeless to yacht in about four decisions. 
because you're never going to be satisfied. There's always a better version of whatever you're doing. It's in your bones. It's frustrating if you try to control it. I hate to tell you this, Christmas is like tomorrow. It's coming. Children, we love children. Children get a Christmas gift. They don't want to tell you. We don't want to admit that's what they're saying, but their eyes go, that was really cool. Where's the next one? What else can I open? Even if they only like the one they got and they're super content, it only takes a few months before they're already thinking about next Christmas. We're hardwired to want the next thing. We are unsatisfied when we chase the kingdom of me. So this takes us back to where we started. How do we escape this frustration? How do we find that wisdom changes the hardness into peace? If you, can, if you can find the wisdom to know that God is in control and has a plan, the hardness begins to fall away. It requires us to release the striving for control and then in doing so release the toil, release the frustration and the bitterness. And in that, we begin to find a new trust and a new hope and a new peace. So we'll finish today by telling you a story that's been told many times about Abraham and Isaac. So I'll tell it long story short. Abraham had been waiting for a long time to have a kid, couldn't have a kid. God blessed him with a kid. Gives him Isaac, the apple of his eye, pride of his life. Isaac, as best we can figure, is in his probably teen years. And God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as an offering to the Lord. This is back in the day of blood sacrifices where doves or rams or various things were sacrificed to pay off sin and to pay off uh, the, the wrongs we had done with the Lord. And, and so Abraham, admiring Abraham, was profoundly outside of his control at this point. And yet he's faithful. And so he says, I'll do what you want, Lord. So Abraham and Isaac begin to walk up the mountain to the altar where he would be sacrificed. Isaac, I think, knows what's happening, but maybe is also trying to ask some questions to just see if Abraham will tell him along the way, like, hey, where's the wood? You know, where's the sacrifice? And yet, on they go. As the story goes, Isaac is then bound, so imagine some ropes. He's bound and ready for sacrifice on the altar. Abraham, you have to imagine, his heart is breaking as his love for his creator is asking him to let go of the thing he loves the most. How profoundly out of control was Abraham in this moment? How terrified, how unjust could this have felt to him? And yet how fully submitted was he to a king? And so, as he's about to sacrifice his son, there in the thicket is a ram. Abraham's shown the ram, he sees the ram, it's a perfect sacrifice, it's exactly what I should do. And he's able to release Isaac, take the ram, satisfy God's request, has shown his faithfulness, and he gets to keep Isaac. He keeps his son. In Genesis twenty-two fourteen, it says, Abraham named the place where this happened, Yahweh or Jehovah, Yaira, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. He named the place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, because in his faithfulness, in his submittedness, he was ready. And it didn't make any sense. He was firmly out of control, and God provided what he needed in the moment. God provides. To say it another way, God is enough. 
in the hardness of our scenarios and the, the complication of our current place in life, God is enough. God is always enough. When it doesn't make sense to us, when we feel out of control of it, God is enough. His wisdom is beyond mine, so he can be trusted. He can be in control because he knows better. I can just be. And if I can just be and let God be in control, then the scripture says the hardness of my face will change. There's this inside thing that changes that actually flows outward, and I will have a different countenance about me. I will be physically different because of the internal change that's happened when I've released control I've released the striving for wisdom, and I've said there is only one who knows the interpretation of a thing. There's only one who understands what's really happening. If you're here today, and you are frustrated with something in your life, if you are exhausted by the season that you're in, if you're experiencing trials or suffering, if you're feeling hopeless or profoundly wrecked, if you're struggling to do something that God's asked you to do that doesn't make a ton of sense, The invitation today for all of us is to, like Abraham, call on Jehovah, God, but specifically call on Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Because the truth is, we've all had our own moment. We've all had our own moment where sacrifice was called for, where blood needed to be spilled. We've all had our own moment, and whether you know it or not, you've had this moment in your life. Scripture says that sin leads to death because sin can't exist with the perfection of God the Father. The God in his perfection and his holiness and set-apartness can't coexist with sin. Sin doesn't make it into heaven. Sin is punished by death. Sin leads us to hell. Sin requires some sacrifice. And so in the Old Testament, it was doves or a ram. It was the spotless lamb on the Passover when the blood over the doorpost. And you read through the Old Testament, you'll see sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And you and I required the same sacrifice because our lives were marked by our falling short. Even the best life falls short, Ecclesiastes says. Even the most righteous man is not without sin. And so our unholiness forced us, like Isaac, to be bound. We were bound for death. And God again sent a lamb in the thicket. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, behold, almost as he's looking out into the thicket for all of humankind, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that moment, as Jesus begins his ministry on earth, as Jesus begins his walk of perfection leading to his ultimate unjust death on the cross, in that moment, you and I bound in the ropes on the altar to be sacrificed, to make things right, those ropes start to loosen. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and you and I bound for destruction, the ropes begin to loosen, and we are no longer bound. Because in Christ, there is the once and for all sacrifice, a forever eternal sacrifice on the cross. And and don't miss that as he breathed his last on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. It's finished. He's saying, I've done the work. You can stop striving. You can release control. 
You can release the hardness and the frustration and the bitterness. You can leave it all behind. I've done it. It is finished. That Jesus is Jehovah Jireh's ultimate gift, his ultimate provision, because if you have Jesus, you have enough. There's not more required of you. There's not better behavior. There's not a new ascent. If you are in Christ, you are secured and saved forever. If you are struggling today, Jesus is enough. If you're in trial today, Jesus is enough. If you are dealing with sickness today, Jesus is enough. If you're frustrated or exhausted or hopeless or wrecked in every circumstance, Jesus is enough. He is your path to peace. He and nothing less is the way to the good life. We're going to spend eight weeks going through the book of Ecclesiastes asking the question, what's the good life? It's Jesus. Nothing less. Nothing less. Everything less leaves you frustrated and unsatisfied. And yet Jesus says, you're tired and you're weary. Follow me and I'll show you rest. I'll show you hope. I'll show you peace. Listen to him in Matthew 11. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Church, are you burned out on religion, trying to be good enough, getting that behavior fixed up, getting that habit kicked? Jesus doesn't say, go to another class, read another book. Jesus says, come to me. Get away with me. Recover your life. Recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Who among us doesn't need a real rest? Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And Jesus says, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Grace was designed for you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus is inviting you to take on the good life. And when we say, what is the good life? He says, it's me. And Jesus, once and for all, the Lord provides the ram and the thicket. Jesus walks out and says, I'm here, I'll take it, I'm yours. And so our prayer today is to simply look at the God of the universe, to look at the Savior who took the cross, was buried and resurrected, who offers us life, and to say, you're enough. Will you follow him fully today? So let this be your prayer. I'm going to invite Greg to sing over us, with us, maybe through us. And this is our time of reflection that we ask the real question, is he really enough for us? And if he is, can this be the day that I make it so in my life?
Father, we find ourselves as a people striving, a people chasing, trying to be enough, to find enough, to do enough. Father, remind us today that you are enough, that nothing less than you will do, and submitting to anything else but you will leave us far short of what you've created us for. God, that you love us more than we can ask, think, or imagine. And in that, Father, allow us to rest today in you, in your goodness and your grace. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.